everybody, welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We are excited to continue our series on the spicy, the uncomfortable, the what did he just say moments that we have found throughout the Gospels. We are attempting to dive into passages where Jesus says things that we might not have expected him to say. Things that are a little uncomfortable, a little spicy, as we've been saying. And so today is potentially one of the more spicy things that we will find. Um, I know for me personally, this is one of the most uncomfortable passages of scripture I've ever read. And so uh, without further ado, we're just going to dive right into Matthew chapter 15 and Lisa's going to take it away. Um, Verse 21 through 28. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Sidon? Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was instantly healed. Happy Lent. (laughs) It's It's so good to meditate on Jesus. Makes us feel great. Uh, Jathan, you named in the introduction that this is one of the most uncomfortable passages to you. Maybe let's start there. What makes it uncomfortable to you? Well, I think a better question is what doesn't make it, I mean, (laughs) only the end where something good finally happens, uh, is, is comfortable. The rest of it is, I mean, all of it, right? Like ignoring, send her away, calling her a dog. Uh, saying that you're only here for the lost sheep of Israel and not for anyone else. I, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a lot of Jesus. I mean, I, I mean the, the way that I've been taught Jesus, the way that Jesus was handed down about perfect and like amazing and benevolent and kind and all of the things that, you know, you see hanging on the wall holding a little sheep, right? Like. It, this doesn't feel like that at all. And and to be honest, this feels more the opposite of Jesus than even when Jesus brandishes a whip and drives out the money changers, because at least those people were doing something that was hurting the poor. And Jesus was like fed up with it. This is a woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon and he's got no time for her. It's like, I, yeah. Even though I've wrestled with this passage before, it still catches me off guard. Mm-hmm. Lisa, how did it feel to you to be reading it? Mm. I don't know. I think I have, my brain just tries to make Jesus Jesus. So I don't like, I'm like, well, there's got to be an explanation. <laughs> like, there's got to be something. Right. <laughs> right. Um, 
But if I put if I if I allow for it to be um rude, well then I'm like, welcome to <laughs> welcome to the world of women. <laughs> like encountering a group of men <laughs> that hold the power <laughs> and authority and you're begging for a scrap. Mm. So like I kind of I can I can switch. I've not found a middle ground. Mm-hmm. I kind of I kind of go one way or the other on it. Mm-hmm. I noticed it was interesting to me. I did a sermon on this passage last year. And it's the first time I've really like heard it since then and I'm like, "Oh yeah, this feels different to me now." Which is that was interesting to notice. Like having having had some time to dig into it previously, it doesn't get under my skin in the same way. So we'll see how that affects how how we talk about things today. One thing I noticed, or like I would love to move towards first, is how how we read and hear the fact that he, Jesus didn't answer her in verse 23. Because for the first time today, I wondered if it was a test for the disciples. When I think about who Jesus is and how Jesus operates and how people test Jesus, but also Jesus tests other people like, okay, here we are in this land where we are the outsiders. And so we then are going to think of these people as outsiders. Tyre and Sidon are outside of the land of Israel. It's in the land of Phoenicia, which is part of the Greco-Roman world, but not a part of what was historically the promised land. These were always outsider cities to what was the historic promised land. And they go there. What if Jesus wants to see how his disciples respond to a woman who asks for help from a place that would have been a historic other group? And that's why he waits. That's fine. (laughs) No, no, seriously. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine if Jesus wants to see how they're going to react. But when Jesus seemingly doubles down on their reaction, because they're like, send her away. And then his response then becomes, I'm not here for you. Like, I'm not going to even give you, you know, like, I'm not going to share the bread that's supposed to go to the children with the dogs. Like, I mean, he, (laughs) if this was supposed to be a lesson in compassion, Jesus fails to give the lesson. (laughs) Well, I feel like, cause I was like, okay, so then if I go with that, if I go with that idea, then I feel like the question, like the, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel should be a question, not a statement. Right. Which, which I could get into, yep. except that he then goes to the dog statement, <laughs> which yep. feels like that's the, like, there's something in the, <laughs> there's these three actions of Jesus in this thing that makes me go, hey, well. Every time I think I can make it, like, hmm. Okay, let's let's actually let's map out what the actions of Jesus are in the in this passage because maybe each of them are worth talking about in their own right. So, what's the first action? Did not answer. So I would I would actually go earlier than that for the first action. So I'll leave. I think the first action is that they go to Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. Sure. That's action number one. They go to this place, and Jesus leads them to this place from Capernaum into Tyre. Tyre and Sidon. What's action number two? 
Ignoring her. Ignoring her. What's action number three? Telling her that she's a dog. No. Uh, right. First, first he says, "I'm I'm sent to the lost sheep of Israel." Right. Okay. Then, after she worships him, he answers. Now answers the dogs. Yeah. Don't take the bread and cast it to the dogs. Then she responds again, and he answers, "Great is your faith," and heals. So we could sort of map out like what's going on in that progression from number one to number five of going there, ignoring her, talking about the lost sheep of Israel, calling her a dog, telling, saying she has great faith. So maybe we start with going to Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Matthew is like trying to help his Jewish audience realize why exit the land of Israel and go to Tyre and Sidon. So if you like, just to map this out for since people are listening and not looking at a map, Tyre and Sidon is in modern day Lebanon. So it's North, it's on the Mediterranean Sea. These are port cities and these are powerful port cities. So Phoenicia became powerful because Phoenicia is the place in the ancient world that figured out how to dye purple cloth. And Purple is uh, the was even then the color of royalty because it was rare and it was important to get it that color purple. So Phoenicia had been a powerhouse for a long time and actually withstood the Assyrian Empire for quite a while um, back in 700 BC before they got taken over. But it's in like the southern part of modern day Lebanon. He had been before that. I don't know exactly where he'd been around the Sea of Galilee, um, which is in northern. Um, which is in the northern part of the ancient land of Israel. So he's moving to another modern day, he'd be moving to another country in that realm. It's just moving to another part of the, of the Greek empire, but not, but outside of the historic land of Israel. So why do that? That's maybe question number one. Why go there at all? Do we not know? <laughs> I mean, the text doesn't tell us why. So, I mean, really, we're just speculating. And I don't have an answer other than we all like <laughs> a weekend by the sea. <laughs> Maybe he's just going on a little vacation. I get look, give me away from these religious leaders in Israel. Take me to this. Take me to the Mediterranean Sea, please. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, please. I mean, I'm happy to go on a little weekend retreat with the guys. So. Well, and on, like, honestly, let's let that be a possibility and say, like, what if he and the disciples are taking a little weekend retreat? And that's a part of the annoyance here is like, oh, I didn't think anyone would recognize me here. I just I just wanted to be on vacation for a, for a minute before going back into the fight. It could be an honest option. Yeah. We were on big. Sorry, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that we were on vacation last spring break and we happened to be vacationing at the same place that Tony Dungy, the former coach of the Colts, and he is an analyst for NBC and does football stuff. And we noticed him. And then we also noticed other people noticing him and they'd be like, Hey coach, like, Oh, you're my favorite. Like, thanks for all you, you know, and they would just like start. And like, you could just tell it made him uncomfortable. And, and so like our family was like, okay, let's just not do that. Um, and like, even though we're like huge football fans and love Tony Dundee, whatever. Um, but then we like happened to like be really close for a long proximity of time. And 
like my mother-in-law who's like the silliest person of all was just like you know like do you have something to do with football <laughs> like she just kind of was like playing dumb and uh and it was really cute anyway but yeah i mean sometimes you just want to like not be recognized and just chill right there's a story in my family that may not be true of somebody if i remember correctly it was some relative that ended up sitting next to billy joel on a plane <laughs> and had no idea who billy joel was <laughs> and like told the story afterwards like oh i sat next to this nice man <laughs> oh my gosh that's funny. um but then part of the story became how much he loved sitting next to somebody who didn't know who he was mm. and he got to have a regular conversation yeah i play music for a living oh cool yeah cool. great <laughs> Um, so even if it's not true, like that idea feels true, right? That if you're if you're a person of infamy in any way, like you might want a moment where you just get to be human. But Lisa, you sound like you had something uh, more practical in mind. <laughs> no, I I don't even know what I was thinking anymore. It's fine. Sorry. <laughs> it's totally fine. So what other reasons, <laughs> Steph, could Jesus be in Tyre and Sidon? <laughs> Well, I think we've got a couple things that are historically interesting about this region. So one is that Ahab marries a Phoenician princess later. So, but the relationship with Tyre and Sidon starts with Solomon because when Solomon is building the temple, they get help from Tyre and they get help from Tyre to build the temple. And so, even though it's this other land, there is a relationship because they have. I think what they have. I was looking this up. Is wood. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, and gold, silver, and bronze. Like I feel like I feel like Settlers of Catan is a game about building the temple and like some of those trades in the ancient world. It, because like Israel had wheat. Yeah. But Tyr had like um wood. Like they need to <laughs> and then actually it was like it was another um I think it was Edom that had sheep. Like it really is like a little game of trading. So uh at that time Tyr helps them. Um when we get to the time of Ahab. Um, Ahab marries Jezebel, who's a Phoenician princess. So that's a relationship with, that would be like the kingdom that Tyr and Sidon are a part of in the ancient world. And then uh, during the time of Ahab is also the time of, um, of the prophet Elijah. And Elijah goes to the widow of Zarephath to be cared for for several years. And that's in Sidon. So that actually one of the most famous stories about this region is also about a woman who lives, who is from Sidon who um who provides uh bread and water for Elijah um and he and the as long as Elijah's in her house the flour isn't used up um and then that's the widow's son that he revives um so this idea of having a, a being in Sidon and having a sick child um and being a woman is reminiscent of the widow of Zarephath and the provision that she gives to Elijah and the healing that he provides for her son. So that's in 1 Kings 17. Um, but then when we get to the prophets, Tyre and Sidon have some pretty harsh words coming from Isaiah and other places. So So what you're saying is that let's take it out of the context of why was Jesus there, but let's move into the context of why was Matthew writing this? And maybe Matthew tells this story of Jesus going there to draw that contrast or to draw our attention to the 
kind of larger narrative of important people finding themselves attached to this part of the world and maybe asking the question, how is this interaction going to go? Is it going to go the way of Ahab making an alliance that the prophet said shouldn't happen and it's going to lead to destruction? Or is it going to be to go to this place and receive something and receive care? Um, or is it going to be something altogether new? Um, and, you know, and so maybe that's why we're getting this language. Um, not that I say that it's not true, but that the writer is trying to cue us into something. That's an interesting, yeah, like as a, as a reader, as a recipient of Matthew's gospel, like which memory of Tyr and Sidon comes to mind first? Is it going to, mm -hmm. which part of the story am I going to think of? And how is that going to affect how I see Jesus's actions? Some of the reason that there's woe to them and the prophets is, is they actually partnered with Assyria at the point Assyria took over the Northern Kingdom. So in the most, in, in the most recent memory, Tyr and Sidon were enemies because they were allied. I believe, I, I'm pretty sure this is true, <laughs> that they were allied with Assyria in the takeover of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And so that would be a freshest, the freshest wound of the history, even though there was some positive history before that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, any of those and what he also could back to the, like, he could just be on vacation. <laughs> he could be, he could just be traveling around, but it does point out, this is where he goes. So as a reader, as a listener, we're like, okay, what are we going to think of when I think of Tyr and Sidon? And then what are we going to think of when a woman from Canaan comes out? So that's also interesting language that it calls her. And we were talking about this before we press record that in the book of Mark, she's called the Syrophoenician woman. And in the book of Matthew, she's called a Canaanite woman. And what is that going to trigger in my imagination when I hear that language from Matthew? How am I going to see this woman? How am I going to perceive her actions based on that label being given to her? Mm -hmm. Well, there's clearly a lot of tension there. Canaanites and Israelites weren't exactly best friends. And so we are, again, making a contrast. So if Jesus is in a place that has a checkered history with Israel, one that's potentially pretty harmful in the more, more recent history, and now the person interacting with Jesus is being labeled as someone who's not had a favorable history with people of Israel. So we're kind of doubling down on the possibility for this to go sideways. Mm. I think about, I I'd actually, be, because I asked the question of um, the disciples being tested by Jesus, I actually think about the way that the reader is being tested by the time we get to verse 22 of, okay, they're in here in Sidon. There's a woman of Canaan. How are we viewing this story? Um. What are we going to hear based on our view of it? Because there's a bunch of options here for how we view this woman. So because she is a woman and she's being labeled a Canaanite, she could be considered like a double other. Um, like a, um, And actually, we'll, I think we'll get into this. That like a, There's women as theologians who consider her a double oppressed person in a way that a black woman would be. Hmm. Because she's both a Canaanite and a woman, that she's she's got this double other category of things that could be a part of then how we see her, how we see her actions, how we think of her as in that way. But because she's also from Tyre and Sidon, which have traditionally been powerful places, she actually could be a woman of prominence and power. 
Um, she could be a dealer of purple cloth who's got a business serving royalty, like that whole thing's still going to exist in these places. And so we're left with a little bit of a mystery here of, is she a person without power? Or is she a person with power? And in either case, how do we view her actions? Mm-hmm. And how do we view Jesus' response? Lisa, you haven't said anything for a while. Mm, well, it's a lot of information. And um. I don't know that any of it helps me yet in terms of like, what's the, <clears throat> like what's happening. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't, I was trying to think of like, I was like, well, maybe it's like Jesus went to Canada. <laughs> and I was like, well, <clears throat> we're not really enemies of Canada. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, maybe like what's the modern day equivalent to like being from a place. And then I was like, maybe it's about like, like socioeconomic status would be something we would understand. But I also was like, I just, what the gospels have always been presented to me as is this, um, it's the evangelical narrative of Jesus is bringing the good news to everyone. Like that's what Jesus is doing. And then Paul's going to continue that journey. Um, like that, that's the entire mission. And so I think I'm trying to like, partly I'm like, okay, well maybe Jesus is like going there to show the disciples. I want you to go to all the places, like not to be defined by borders. Um, I don't know. It's just a really Jack story. It's like, I still uh, like, so I mean, double oppressed woman, like double, that doesn't make me feel any better about this, how this thing goes down. Mm-mm. No, I mean, every time we make this woman feel like more like another, it makes the story worse, right? Because mm-hmm. then, because it's like, every time you get further away from privilege, you would think Jesus would show up with more compassion. But instead, it's like, well, because we know how he responds to her, the more oppressed we make her, the worse this gets. Um but I, I wonder if we are centering the wrong person when we tell this story, because we often just go, what was Jesus doing? But what if we were to say, let's look at what this woman did, right? Let's look at what her actions were, because I think that the, I think there's two powerful stories here. There's, there's her persistence to getting what she needs for someone else. And then there's also, I think Jesus's response to that, but I think it's a response. I don't think Jesus is the initiator here. Jesus isn't the one who is like teaching anyone anything. Jesus isn't the one who's informing of this is how the kingdom of God should be. Like we're not getting any instruction from Jesus, like, but we are getting things from her and, and she's at some level educating in this moment, if we allow her to be an educator. What is she educating? What do you see? I think she's demanding to be seen. I think she's saying that it doesn't matter where you go, you're going to see the people. Um, you know, I, I, I had, I, I wish, I wish I could remember the woman who spoke about this passage. It was about eight years ago. 
at a evening lecture and it was this wonderful uh African American woman who spoke on this passage and she spoke on it from the woman's perspective exactly like what you had mentioned Steph that double oppressed perspective and she made the point that Jesus's heritage Jesus's upbringing would have impacted him to prioritize the Jewish people that that is what the educational system would have expected of Jesus. And this woman is coming to say, you can't just do that because there's hurting people everywhere. And that Jesus finally gets it. Like this is an educational moment for Jesus to recognize where liberation extends to and where like the gospel should actually go. Mm-hmm. And so she was crediting this woman I think in a very meaningful, powerful way of educating Jesus and teaching him about the nature of God's grace in a, in a larger world. Um, There's an article um, when I did do this sermon last year, um, what was transformational to me was Lisa's advice to read the womanist perspective. And um, so this article that I, I, the fact that I have it in my notes here, Lisa gets credit for sending it to me. So it's a woman named Mitzi Smith who wrote an article called From Race, Gender, and Womanist Sass. Um, and it talks about the bias Jesus is showing towards this woman. Um, and I'm just going to read from it. <clears throat> the woman can either submit to her oppression, like that she's facing here in this passage, or she can challenge and resist, affirming her own humanity. Colonization does not encourage unity among the colonized. It encourages them to guard the crumbs. The woman resists with the only thing she has, her reason, her logos, her sass. She was up against something unreasoned. The Syrophoenician woman did not let the differences in their ethnicity or status, Jesus' reputation as a healer, or any stigma associated with her having a daughter possessed by an unclean spirit hinder her from sassing or talking back to Jesus. The Syrophoenician mother challenged what Jesus labeled good and fair. This is what Sass does. It challenges those systems, traditions, and people that are neither just nor moral, but deleterious and deadly to oneself, one's people, and the human race. Mm. So this idea that she was talking back to Jesus with Sass because that was the power she still had in her pocket. Mm. Um, Where this still, where this... um, goes, I'm going to read a little bit more. The story of the Syrophoenician woman provides an antithesis to the silent, submissive woman who dares not sass or talk back to male authority figures. The story can assist in constructing a more empowering and freeing theology of of talk back that demonstrates the impact and value of woman's sass. She stands, this woman stands in the tradition of biblical predecessors predecessors like Queen Bashti, which we talked Mm. about on our live podcast. Yeah. Of like who's willing to talk back to power mm. and why is it the double oppressed person or the woman or whatever it might be like, who's, how might another person have responded to Jesus when he said no? And what does it say about this woman that she won't take his no? Still doesn't make Jesus look good, but it makes the woman like back to what you said, Jason, about centering the woman. Mm-hmm. When we center her, we might see something more going on here. 
Lisa, what's your thought? And you lean back and then forward again. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> I think you always have body language that can't be heard. So I want to like say what you did and find out what you're thinking. Well, it's kind of the, the things that rise up for me is the question of like, can we allow Jesus to actually have prejudices? Like, is there, is there space for Jesus, for Jesus's humanity to have those things in them is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, cause I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to get into conversation, whether it's a sin or not and Jesus and less all that business, <laughs> but like to let Jesus be fully human and be a person who has been raised in a culture and in a setting that would have some opinions and allow Jesus to be teachable that he's teachable during the interactions that he's having with people that instead of thinking of Jesus as being the one who's always doing all the changing and all the, like he's changing other people's lives. He's Uh fixing things. He has all the, like in this setting with that conversation, it means that Jesus is then teachable and he's learning from his peers and from people who in unexpected places, he's open to the, and it's like this, if that's true, then it allows Jesus to have a lifetime like change of course. Mm-hmm. That Jesus doesn't take long to recognize the mistake of assuming something poorly about this woman. He recognizes it and turns it rather quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, which I like, I like that, that idea. I'm not sure. I Like, I'm also thinking about, I mean, Jason, when you were talking about I was like, if if this was Luke telling the story and it was a positive woman's story, I would go for it. Because I feel like Luke has a pretty good, mm-hmm. has a better history with women than yeah, other gospels. For sure. Yeah, he does. Matthew. <laughs> and then I'm like, I just, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. I Well, it, so it, maybe this, this also plays with fire a little bit, but what if it's, what if something in this passage reveals Matthew's bias? Mm-hmm which may not be Jesus's bias. Like, is there something in how Matthew's telling the story where Luke would have told it differently and it would feel different to us because maybe we feel a little bit of Matthew's bias coming across here, mm-hmm. which, which I think both those thoughts are a little dangerous depending on how we grew up to think of Jesus as changing his mind or to think of Matthew as having bias might feel scary. It's okay mm-hmm. if that feels scary. It's also okay if you don't think that's true. So you don't have to ascribe to that belief system of how you hold the Bible or how you hold Jesus, but it can, it can open our minds and hearts when we allow it to be possible for a moment and wonder how it affects how we see a story. Even if theologically we end up like, no, I don't think that happened. I do think Matthew is telling in a non-biased way. I do think that Jesus is always good and doesn't change. Like you can do that. It's okay. But what, what happens if we just open up that possibility for a second? that it could be different. Then what I hear in the Jesus changing his mind thing is I I hear then that what is elevated in our humanity isn't being perfect, but being teachable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so often it feels like people are striving for perfection versus teachability. Yep. And what if Jesus is modeling teachability as like the best way to be human? Mm. I mean, I think that feels like a, not a simple takeaway, but, but also like a, it's a simplified 
takeaway, but also like a really monumental shift that Christianity has struggled with for a long time. Because even as you guys were talking about this idea of SAS, all of the things that I grew up with, don't SAS back, respect your elders, like don't talk back. Like all of that stuff just comes up naturally um, because that's the way that it's been wired into me to, to, to connect or to the way in which you talk to people is you don't confront the elder. You don't confront the person that's in charge. You don't share what you think. Um, even because you, you have to just respect and respect, respect. Um, and I, and I like respect. I'm not trying to say like, don't respect anyone, but like nothing changes. If all we do is respect the status quo, like nothing changes. It takes someone disrupting the status quo in order for things to change. And this woman in this story knows that things have to change. And so she's going to disrupt the status quo. She's going to disrupt the right way, quote unquote, of doing things. And, and I love that. It makes me uncomfortable, but it's, it's really powerful and beautiful at the same time. I love, I love that push because I think that not talking back is a part of that idealized perfection mm-hmm. that we think it, and, and that it goes together then with, if Jesus is changing his mind, maybe, maybe it also means it's not always bad to talk back or it's not always bad to, um, be against the person in power, um, when somebody, something is unjust, um, mm-hmm. and kind of pushing against all of those preconceived notions. Um, of what appropriate behavior is supposed to look like. Um, there's another article um, by a woman named Susanna Asikanen, I think is how you say your name, um, talking about, it's called a, a Woman Out of Place. It might be, an, maybe it's an excerpt from her book, but he she puts together this woman, Jesus's mother and the Samaritan woman as three examples of women who transgressed social customs um, and didn't submit to a male authority figure. And what is it to have examples of three women, maybe it's even more in the gospels who aren't submitting to male authority and the story is written down. And, um, and what is shown there is like that this woman challenges and persuades Jesus to give him, to give her what she wants. And so I highlighted something in this article cause I'd never thought of it before. As a result of this woman's retort, Jesus changes his mind and heals her daughter, which means that this woman is the only person in the synoptic gospels to best Jesus in an argument. Mm. And to say like in all of those discussions he gets into with Pharisees and all the discussions he gets into with priests and all the discussions he gets into with the disciples, all of those folks never best him in an argument. This woman does. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's one of those things that's helped this passage feel different to me is like, what if it's here to show us that? Doesn't necessarily get Jesus off the hook for needing to be bested, but it the thing I'm it's making me curious about is um the line I'm I'm give me <laughs> give me a little grace to see if I can say this in the in clear language from what's in my head. 
sometimes I think I am being compassionate or empathetic when I am actually being biased and maybe even racist or um, privileged in some way because I am not treating the person I'm dealing with as an equal. I'm treating myself as a person who should speak kindly and compassionately to the lesser person. Um, And I think that's like a subtle part of our biases that comes into play is if I'm speaking to somebody who's not from the dominant power group, I might talk down and make them childlike in my eyes. It's one of the, and, and then because they're childlike, I'm speaking kindly. I'm not speaking boldly because I'd only speak boldly to my peers. And so one of the things I'm curious about here is if the boldness that Jesus is speaking with is a way of elevating her um, because he's not, because he's then treating her like a debate partner instead of like a person who needs his um, sympathies, right? So even this statement of like, yes, but even the, um, we don't take the the meat and cast it to the dogs. Like, what if he's treating her like a debate partner and expects her to talk back? Mm. And that's actually a way of showing a non-bias, even though at first it feels like an affront. So let me put it in my own words then. So the the, the narrative of this story could have gone, there's a woman outside, she's yelling for your attention. Lord, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter has a demon. Jesus ignores the situation, doesn't doesn't really hear it, kind of just plays it off, whatever. The disciples are like, hey, send her away. Jesus could have just said, hey, like, I'm so sorry. The guys and I are just having a moment. Can I can I connect with you later? Right? Could have just kind of blown her off. But instead, because she's called him Lord, son of David, those are like significant terms that get to something more elevated than most people at that time have probably given Jesus credit for. Mm-hmm. So she's already identifying something about him that is tapping into something. And this is someone from a different country. So like she's tapped in here. She's like, she's bringing an A game, right? And so instead of just shooing her away, playing it off like it's no big deal, Jesus is like, okay, let's see if you got some chops, right? I'll play a little debate with you. And then he goes with the whole, you know, the masters don't waste the food, you know, whatever, whatever, like, you know, calls her a dog. And then she fires back at him with an even better response. Yeah, well, even the dogs get the scraps on the master's table, which culturally, that's actually a thing, right? Like culturally, the the rich and the wealthy and the powerful treated their dogs better than the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here she is saying, hey, if you really are this powerful, you're supposed to take care of me, right? That That's actually part of what her response is, is like, yeah, you're supposed to give me some of this. This is how it works when you have this kind of power. And that is where the trajectory shifts. That's where the debate is won. Is that kind of what you're getting at? That Jesus like sees her, her energy and is like, okay, let's go here for a minute. Yeah, well, I'm, I guess I'm thinking about another way to interpret what Jesus is doing as, yeah. as maybe not being rude, but potentially being empowering. And this doesn't, again, this is my, this is a possibility. Yeah. It's not the only possibility. We can absolutely think Jesus is 
rude and getting corrected, which is a part of what we already named as a possibility. I'm wondering if another possibility is that he is treating her as a debate partner yeah, versus an object of needing sympathy and empathy, which then in a way is elevating her, not degrading her because he's like, is he assuming she will talk back to what he has to say? In which case there's a, like what I think about is like how the action, I do a lot of Enneagram work <laughs> besides 40 Orchard's work and how often the actions of type eights get misinterpreted because type eights are really comfortable in debate and argument. And it's because they expect you to fight back when they fight. Um, and that sometimes the conflict that's caused isn't necessarily because the eight is doing something wrong. It's because the other person is interpreting that they're supposed to fall back in response to the disagreement instead of meet it toe to toe. And the, and the eight is expecting a toe to toe meeting. And so like, if we put that in Jesus here and say, I'm saying this to you, cause I expect you to fight me on it. There's a way that might have some goodness in it. That's not um, it's not obvious unless we slow down and wonder, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially in the Greek world where debate is held as such an important and high thing. If he is treating her as a debate partner, there's a respect that would show. Mm -hmm. And you might read this and be like, there's no way he's doing that stuff. You're dumb. It's totally fine. <laughs> it's just, I'm, right. I'm like, not saying this is the only way I'm saying, I wonder if it's a possibility right. that he's treating right. her like a debate partner. Right. Lisa, you look skeptical about that one. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yep. <laughs> I just, I, again, I would feel differently if she initiated the debate. It feels a little bit, um, and maybe I have a false view of like how Jesus is holding power with the disciples at this moment. Maybe the Canaanite woman actually has more, I don't know, like, I, it's really hard to like hold the like woman and the Canaanite description and then have Jesus kind of like challenge her. It feels unfair. It feels what the, what for, why would you do all that? Like she's clearly come into the conversation acknowledging, like, it's not like this woman is out in left field of like, who are you? Will you just please heal my daughter? Like she's very clearly like Lord, son of David. To even acknowledge the lineage of David feels like she's got to know something about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. So maybe she, like, maybe that speaks to her being educated or able to, like, have access to information. And then she does go in knowing that it's going to be a debate or that potentially, I don't know. He just doesn't speak to a ton of people like this. I, you know what? I feel like <laughs> well, he does to the Pharisees or to the like other like others with powerful religious position, like the brood of vipers we talked about last. Yeah, time. I mean he 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 calls out religious leaders and and speaks to them pretty harshly. I think um, I'm okay with that. <laughs> what was that? I said I think I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, right. Like I'm That's okay the with them We're calling okay with out that. those guys, not this woman. <laughs> I a thousand percent agree with you. Which I mean, there's maybe, a, in, maybe my own bias, right? Like in some ways, like <laughs> Jesus could be this. If I'm okay with Jesus being this way towards Pharisees and 
religious leaders, maybe I also have to be okay with Jesus being this way towards a woman from Canaan. Mm -hmm. Because we don't see Jesus treating, for instance, the, um, the woman caught in adultery, right? In this way. We don't see Jesus treating the woman who anoints his feet with oil this way. We don't see Jesus treating, you know, any of the people that he heals this way. I mean, we never get that pushback when we do see also, another marginalized person. Okay, but how come he's always catching the, like, the woman catching the woman in adultery? There's got to be some men in that situation. How come he's not calling them out? Why aren't they? I well, that one. I agree with you. That one, I think, is actually because they bring up uh, the religious leaders bring that woman to Jesus. They do, yeah. So they're the ones calling her out, he, not him. Yeah, and that, and that, and he's he confronts them. He doesn't confront her, but like, but he doesn't. There's, <laughs> there's, there's like compassion with all of these other people that are in a vulnerable position. And so we do see, and I think that's what makes this all the more uncomfortable is that here we see, we seem to have another vulnerable person coming to Jesus for help and he doesn't do it. And and I, and so I think it begs the question, and this is why it's just a question. Is she as vulnerable as we like to think she is? Because he treats her like she's a religious leader or like she's got status or power. He doesn't treat her like she's vulnerable in need of help. Even though she says, my daughter has a, a demon, like, which sounds pretty vulnerable. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. so I tripped myself up really quickly. Well, but it, it goes back to like, how do we, like all that information in the front of like, Tyr and Sidon create a couple possibilities for who this woman is. These are, these are powerful cities and a powerful place. Tyr is considered the birthplace of Europe. Um, Google that. <laughs> um, and so like, it is a powerful port city. She could have been a powerful woman. And does that change how we are reading Jesus' interaction with her? If it's a powerful woman. Well, and all the other women that we had from that area that we've interacted with so far have been powerful or influential or have been caretakers or have been movers and shakers, you know, whether it's helping Ezekiel out or whether it's becoming, you know, the wife of the king of Israel, you know, like there's, yeah, I mean, at some level, a woman from this area is not automatically oppressed. I'm also noticing that when we read this in Matthew, it's like where Matthew puts the story, in the end of Matthew 14, so in Matthew 14, um, there's a, um, there's the story of the death of John the Baptist. Um, and then there is the story of Jesus feeding the crowd. And then after the story of Jesus feeding the crowd is when um, Jesus walks on water to go meet them. And Peter asks to get out of the boat. And, and then Jesus says to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Um, and then Peter gets in the boat and then there's this hard conversation with the religious leaders and then they get to cheer inside and, but this hard conversation, if we put all that together, what I'm thinking about is the fact that he is treating this woman the way he just treated the Pharisees in chapter in earlier in chapter 15. 
And that he then is elevating her above Peter and above Mm. the disciples. Because just at the end of 14, he said to them, you have little faith, why do you doubt? And he says to her, great is your faith. Mm -hmm. And so like, what if we see that so close together that the disciples are being called, you have little faith, and she is being called, great is your faith. Who's the example we're supposed to follow? Yeah. Was that a rhetorical question? Because we all know the answer. (laughs) Well, I think it it goes back to what you did earlier for us, Jason. I think of like, who do we focus on in this story and why? Like there's a way that maybe we, this sounds weird to say, we overfocus on Jesus in a way that distracts us from really seeing the woman. And the woman is the one Jesus seems to be drawing attention to. And he says, like, you have great faith. Um, in the midst of our struggles with what he has to say earlier, do we hear those words to her at the end of the story and elevate her as a better faith than the disciples? I'm thinking about um, sermons that I've heard that have tried to make it okay that Jesus calls her a dog. And wanting to name out loud that this would be rude. Like there's a there's a hoop jumping that it is to say it is not rude that Jesus says this. And to just say, notice how many other ways in this podcast we're talking about it without trying to soften Jesus's words. Um, because that's our temptation. When we encounter uncomfortable things that Jesus says, it is, a, it is a temptation to soften the words as the interpretation. And we are getting at much deeper things, in my opinion, obviously biased because I'm on this podcast, by not softening Jesus' words. If we let the words be harsh, we're getting to something different. Mm-hmm. I don't know what my question is at the end of that. I'm just wanting to, <laughs> I'm wanting to have a... A, a biblical hermeneutic that wrestles with hard things instead of softening hard things and wanting to challenge all of us to do that, I guess. You know, I, I think in the, if we were like, if we step back from the intimacy of this moment and we, we move a little bit away from the text and we say, okay, this, this whole Jesus thing, this whole God in flesh, this whole Bible, even, you know, Hebrew scriptures, all of it is about transformation of what it means to be human and moving towards love and justice and this whole flow towards a, being a better people of forgiveness and grace. Like that, I mean, I think that's what the narrative is trying to get at. Um, and that's obviously my, my reading, my hermeneutic, my meta narrative. In order for that to happen, you have to change the way systems work because there are systems at play here that, that are working. Like there's a bias that people have in these places towards certain things, towards certain ways of viewing each other, towards certain ways of holding power that are, are working very, very well. These systems are working so well that the rich are getting richer. The poor are getting poorer. 
the powerful are getting more power. Like these systems are actually working incredibly well. And what this story does is it reminds us that systems need to change. And sometimes it takes something out of the ordinary. It takes sass. It takes debate. It takes harsh language. It takes entering into the fray and causing there to be uncomfortability in order for the system to change so that something new can be born. And and so as much as this story is really uncomfortable and I have I still have no way of of making sense of Jesus calling someone a dog, if I step back from it, this story reminds me that oh yeah, this whole thing has to change. That's what this whole Jesus thing is about is something changing so that love and justice and grace and forgiveness can exist and become the way that we are human. This woman is an example of how to do that. She's speaking to power with sass and authority when she might not be expected to. That is what I need to hear sometimes. I think that's what the world needs to hear sometimes. That's what the world needs to listen to sometimes. That's what I'm thinking about right now is like, would I let this woman best me in an argument? Like when I think about power and like what Jesus does here, like would I, however we hold that, like would I let myself be changed? Would I let myself, would I be open to hearing things that are spoken in a way that isn't my preferred way of saying it? Like, would I be open? Am I open? to hearing hearing truth in the midst of uncomfortable words. I feel like I have to do that all the time working with folks who are incarcerated or who have been involved with our justice system. <clears throat> like just about the time I think I like know the answer. I think I have the whole thing figured out. <laughs> There's a very quick humbling. Uh when somebody's like, ah no, you're way wrong. And so it was a, like I think when you said that stuff, I just kept thinking like, well, it's again, this is part of that conversation of proximity. Like there are just certain things you can only learn by being proximate to them, whatever they are. And I think I'm still kind of, I'm sitting with the idea that Jesus is being changed because I'm also sitting with the thought when, like when he says I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, I, I mean, that feels like just as problematic as what he's doing to the woman. And then I, and like, that doesn't get like corrected. In the story, it's not like suddenly, I don't know. I, that one's still lingering a little bit for me. Um, and I'm curious if like this interaction like changes Jesus's trajectory in any ways. Of like how he speaks to the next groups, what he does next, where he goes. Um if there's something in that, like in this interaction that has a longer or larger impact for him. 
Well, because of what you said earlier, Lisa, I actually wonder if what he's saying there, I'm still holding the potential that he's testing the disciples here as a part of what's happening. Like, how are you going to respond to going to this place that's outside your land? So, so they go there. It's a test for them. This woman who says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. All the disciples here is this woman is shouting after us. They can't, they don't hear the words. Cause like Jason, you pointed out, or what both of you maybe pointed out how strong those words are, how clearly she knows who Jesus is. And they don't hear that. They just hear that she's being annoying. And so then he, the, his response of, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel seems to be to them, not to her. Which then I wonder if that's still a test for them. Can you see who Israel actually is? Because she just named me son of David. She's naming herself as a part of the house of Israel because she knows who David is. She knows who I am. Can you see her? Hmm. Um, And like, can you see that that's a part of being a part of the house of Israel? And then she comes and kneels before him and again says, Lord, help me. And now he's having this conversation with her in front of them. So maybe it's still this thing of like that he's saying to her, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs is the kind of thing the disciples would expect him to say because of how they've heard the interaction. But maybe he knows that the woman is going to stand up to that and best the disciples (laughs) of like, no, actually I'm and at the end of it, can we see her as a part of the house of Israel who Jesus is being sent to? Can we see that Jesus is being sent to all and great faith didn't exist in the disciples, and it is existing here in this woman who's a Canaanite, who's an other. She's the one who has faith. There's something in that progression that feels like the disciples are the ones who are most embarrassed, or should be. Mm-hmm. And and I and I like that thought of like that they were missing who Jesus was for. And maybe by the end of this, they caught a bigger glimpse of who Jesus came for and that it was never about Israel in the way they were thinking. Well, and that, that, that makes a very approachable posture for the, for the rest of us reading it as people that might claim to be disciples of Jesus to say like, are you seeing everyone right as part of this move of grace and and justice or are you prioritizing some and not all because that 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 yeah we could use that um or what where are we hearing just shouting when actually it's a very clear message that is not just shouting where do we think there's an inside that we need to hear Jesus then engage with somebody else to say, no, they're that this person's in too. Yeah. Where do we need to hear this person has better faith, greater faith than you? How do we need to be expanded out? And how do uncomfortable things sometimes need to grab our attention in order to really see that? Well, and maybe it is a moment like this where it does lead someone like Paul to say that, and maybe it was Jesus later on. I can't remember, maybe both. Like, like I came first to the house of Israel and then also to the Gentiles. Like, I mean, there's, there's, there's clearly a progression of, Hey, this thing, this thing that we're all been a part of for thousands of years or whatever should have been transformed. 
like this should have done this. We should have transformed this. We should have done this differently. This is what God's been trying to do for a long time now. And now we're going to take that message elsewhere as well. And so I wonder if this is like a, one of those moments where like, you know, yeah, we all know who the house of Israel is, but it's actually bigger than that. Right. And, and so we're going to see others like Jesus, like Paul, like use that language later on. Um, maybe even the book of Hebrews, right? Like we're going to see some of this like priority of Israel and the expanded inclusion of, of the Gentiles. Um, because ultimately this goes, this, I mean, Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all nations. So transforming the house of Israel should have transformed the world. That that's the point, right? Like that's the way. And so I actually don't get hung up on Jesus saying that because I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, if Jesus is operating within a system where he truly believes the covenant that God made with Abraham, that I'm going to bless you to bless all nations, like then transforming what's going on in Jerusalem and Judea and all that, like should have a global impact. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Anyway. Well, I think as you say that, it reminds me of like, this isn't the first in in Matthew eight is when they're in Capernaum and the centurion asks for help and Jesus and, and says, you don't have to come with me. Mm -hmm. Um, You can just heal from here. Like, I know that's the kind of power you have. And Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you, no one in Israel and no one in Israel have I found such faith. Mm -hmm. So that's already happened in Matthew. So there's a bit of a test here. Can we see that continuing to progress out? Can the disciples see that as continuing to progress out? Who do I think this is for? Who do I think, quote unquote, Israel is? Because Israel is is maybe not the in and out that we thought it was. Maybe Maybe all of us can be a part of this family. Well, and in Matthew chapter two, we have the visit, you know, the visit of the Magi. So like some of the first people to acknowledge Jesus as this Lord are people from outside of the community. So, I mean, like Matthew, for as Jewish as Matthew seems to be, you know, and as connected to the history of the Hebrew people as he seems to be, there is this like constant sprinkling in of it's bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger. And maybe from Matthew, what we can hear is it's always been bigger. You're the one who's made it smaller. Like there's a way that it was always, as you said, it was always blessed to be a blessing. It was always about everyone. And if you're not making it about everyone, you're misunderstanding not only Jesus, but you're misunderstanding what came before. And so let's keep correcting this to always have been and to continue to be about all of us moving towards healing and restoration. no matter where we're from. This has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. 
Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by Three Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.